Mike. Lauren. Mike, it's been a week of some pretty heart-wrenching news on top of the news related to the pandemic. Yep. The world is either on fire or underwater or at war, it seems. Yes, because it seems that way because it is true. Uh, So this week, we're going to be talking about power on the Gadget Lab podcast. Not the kind of power that involves influence or control, but power as utility. And how power might be restored to the people of New Orleans. All right, let's do it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. And I am Michael Calori, a senior editor at Wired. We're also joined by Wired senior writer Lily Newman, who is patching in from New York. Um, She's done the thing where she's hanging out in a a very, very small space that we can see on Zoom because it's better for sound. Lily, we appreciate you cramming yourself into what appears to be like a coat closet. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to my closet. (laughs) (laughs) So... We brought Lily on because today we're talking about the power outage in New Orleans. Earlier this week, Hurricane Ida swept through parts of the southern U.S., leaving widespread destruction in its path. It also knocked out power across Louisiana, leaving over a million customers in the dark. And the city of New Orleans was especially hard hit. Now officials are saying it could take weeks for the power to be turned back on. So today we're talking all about power. In the second half of the show, we're going to talk about another dire potential problem. We'll talk about threats to our communications infrastructure from solar storms. But first, there's a more immediate crisis unfolding in Louisiana and parts of Mississippi. Lily, before we talk about bringing power back to New Orleans, tell us first what happened. So in the situation with Hurricane Ida, what I've heard repeatedly is just that the winds were really strong. Instantly, you know, Hurricane Katrina comes to everyone's minds. Uh, and in this case, the levees, floodgates, pumps, the, all the systems that, you know, the federal government and Louisiana have spent billions on over the past 16 years, uh, those were very successful at keeping the water out of New Orleans and in the city itself. There wasn't that sort of mass flooding issue. But the winds in Hurricane Ida were noticeably very strong, and they caused a lot of electrical infrastructure issues. Uh, this massive tower that holds crucial transmission lines that survived Katrina, actually, and sort of memorably was still standing after Hurricane Katrina. Mm-hmm. That tower collapsed during Ida, uh, sending equipment into the Mississippi River. In fact, all eight of the major transmission lines into the city of New Orleans uh, are down because of various issues that crews are still trying to figure out right, you know, right now. And all of that is sort of combining to produce this mass blackout situation. Um, Real quickly, I want to make a distinction between um, transmission lines that you're talking about and power lines, which are the things that are like on our street corners and that run into our house. Those aren't transmission lines. Those are like local power lines. Transmission lines are the very thick 
uh, very uh, high voltage lines that carry power over long distances. So they carry them from like regional power plants to switching substations. And you may recognize them if you've driven on like a, um, a highway in this country, like an interstate highway in this country. And you see these banks of really tall towers with huge lines and they all kind of run in a group. And it looks like they just sort of go off into the distance because they are, they're carrying power like over very, very long stretches. And there's eight of these coming into the city and all eight of them were knocked out. Is that right? Right. Of the eight transmission lines, they're down for different reasons. It's not all because the towers collapsed. That, that's just one example. Uh, it's, it kind of reminds me of, you could think of, there's the pipes in your apartment building or in your house, and then there's the water main. And you know if there's a water main break and the water gets turned off, the pipes in your house are still fine. They're awaiting water, right? but the, the flow is turned off farther upstream. So similar concept here, not that there wasn't any damage to local power lines, but the focus of a lot of the massive systemic failures is on these upstream portions of the equipment. Obviously, pretty destructive hurricanes hit the Deep South um, often. In your reporting, did you get a sense of how prepared um, the city and the people of New Orleans were, you know, for for this disaster and how that preparedness may have helped in this case? Certainly the major electric utility in the area, Entergy, is very, very familiar with the recovery process in the, these situations because unfortunately they have to do it fairly often. You know, when the rain stops and it's the first morning that you're looking at this destruction, the crucial thing is a very thorough reconnaissance process to make sure that Entergy and the other, you know, smaller utilities in the area fully understand what's wrong, what are the problems at power generating stations, what are the problems on those transmission lines that we talked about, what are the problems on every inch of local power lines, and kind of getting a picture of the system so you can then start to strategize about how you're going to bring portions of it back up. Having that experience from past storms allows them to do that process as efficiently as possible, though their estimate is still days to weeks, you know, that Mm -hmm. it doesn't mean you can get this done in two days. But after Katrina, they were able to bring power back up to, to all buildings that could receive power. You know, there had been such extensive damage that that wasn't a given. But that just that process took 40 days. Uh, in subsequent hurricane recoveries, they've sort of gotten it down to, you know, first it was sort of like 30 days. Now, often it's about three weeks. So I think that historic Uh, track record is kind of what's informing them saying that they hope they'll have everybody back around three weeks. Many portions may come back before that. You know, they're they're trying to get everyone they can back as quickly as they can. And, you know, the infrastructure projects we talked about, like levees, flood walls, floodgates, pumps, uh, all of those things are crucial, even though they're not grid infrastructure, because when you don't have flooding or you have much less flooding, you're able to start the reconnaissance process much more quickly. Otherwise, you need to wait days for the floodwaters to recede before you can even really assess. Uh, Entergy and other utilities will go out in fan boats and things to start scouting early, but obviously you're not going to restore 
electricity flow in a ton of water. Like, I think that's very clearly not going to work. Mm-hmm. All these things, all, all the infrastructure improvements contribute to helping the grid get flipped back on quicker. I would also note, though, that there are suburbs of New Orleans and low-lying surrounding areas where those projects are still planned but haven't been completed yet because it was such a massive effort since Hurricane Katrina to fundamentally, you know, rework the flood protections. So there are actually suburbs currently in New Orleans where there was massive flooding and they are still, you know, needing to go through that old process of waiting for the waters to go down, scouting in boats in the meantime. So certainly, even though the success of those measures was heartening and, you know, a huge relief. The process is not done, for sure. Now, Lily, you said in your story that there were some uh, new power plants, I think two new power plants in New Orleans uh, that were designed to be somewhat hurricane-proof. What happened to those during the storm? Yeah, so Entergy has been sort of in conjunction with the state of Louisiana, bringing online, you know, these two new power stations, which are natural gas. They're billed as being more efficient than other Entergy, older Entergy natural gas power plants. And they're, you know, meant to be cleaner, greener, you know, at least that's the pitch about them. The goal with natural gas, it's very abundant in the area. It's kind of easier to keep online during disasters. So that's the idea behind, okay, it's it's hurricane proof because, you know, it runs on natural gas. Except, as you point out, like many of the power plants in the area, those plants are either down or partly down. And so it really indicates that there's still kind of an unresolved component here of how this resiliency plan is really going to work going forward. And uh, it raises questions about how to improve it for sure. Lily, thank you very much for reporting this out for us, telling us all about this. Um, Stick around because when we come back, we're going to talk more about how disasters can affect our infrastructure. The power outage in New Orleans is something that the city is all too familiar with. It's the latest in a long line of infrastructure failures in the wake of disasters across the entire country. And it's also not likely to be the last. So here's another thing for you to worry about at night. Solar storms. Experts have long been worried about how our power and communication systems could potentially be knocked offline by these solar storms. Lily, you recently wrote about these and how a bad solar storm could create a quote-unquote internet apocalypse. Tell us about this. And I guess we should start with what is a solar storm? Right. This is all very ominous, I I just want to (laughs) say. So a solar storm, also known as a coronal mass ejection, uh, is you know, an eruption on the surface of the sun that sends a cloud of magnetized, energized solar particles out into space. In some cases, this is, you know, completely inconsequential from Earth's perspective. And in other cases, that cloud could be heading for Earth. Even in that situation, these storms don't harm people, but they can really throw out of whack uh, electrical internals of devices and 
They can mess with the magnetic poles of the earth for a little bit and, you know, compass needles swinging wildly, things like that. And that's the sort of situation we find ourselves in. The thing, as you said, is that these storms are pretty rare. Like it's rare that the, the cloud hits the earth. So we don't have a lot of experience with the types of things that could happen because some of the biggest solar storms in recorded human history happened really before electrical infrastructure was widespread and definitely before the internet existed. So because there's a little bit of experience from the early days of electricity and things like telegraph wires, there's been a, a lot more focus on grid resilience and playbooks and plans for how grid operators would react to this. And, and there's just a bit more awareness uh, in those industries that this is just something to kind of have in the back of your mind. Lily, the story that you wrote concentrates on the undersea cables that connect the internet service from one country to another. Can you tell us more about that? When it comes to the undersea cables, fiber optic cables that uh, we use to connect the global internet, we don't have as much information about what these solar storms could do or what havoc they could wreak. And researchers at University of California, Irvine, started thinking, well, yeah, I, somebody should maybe take a look at that, you know, like what would happen? So the scenario we're talking about here is if power is down, the internet is down for, you know, pretty much all users, right? But if power comes back and undersea cables are still impacted and they're down, what does that mean for global internet access and ability to connect? Uh, and so that, that, that was the focus of the research. So what is it about undersea cables in particular that makes them so susceptible to damage during solar storms? Yeah, it's in fact not the cables themselves because fiber optic cable isn't really affected by these, you know, energized particles. But the, the big concern is these devices called repeaters that are sort of a, a, a redundancy to make sure as data is flowing along these long distances and there's going to be some signal loss and some integrity loss. The repeaters are sort of like, you know, way stations to collect yourself or something. It's like a stopover to make sure nothing gets lost on the journey. And those have internal components that could be susceptible. And if enough of those are taken down along a cable, you start having sort of irreparable or untenable signal loss. And basically, it's not getting through. We're not picking up what you're putting down anymore. With some of these factors, the researchers were really saying, we, we actually don't know. Like, we don't have enough information yet to model exactly what would happen and that's worrying. And, you know, we need to do more work and more kind of interdisciplinary work with lots of different types of experts in order to look into this a bit more, because the work that's being done about this topic for the electrical grid is basically entirely talking about systems on land. But obviously, undersea cables are in the ocean. So you talked about how this could result in just total signal loss. But I'm wondering about like the long-term damage to these cables. So when these storms happen, how does it nuke our infrastructure? 
or is the damage temporary? And if it does kind of like nuke the cables, then ultimately we have to replace them, right? Right. So there's a, a few different factors here. First of all, the researchers found that this likely would be a bigger concern at higher latitudes, you know, cables that are physically uh, at higher latitudes, the cables that go between the east coast of the U.S. or of North America over to Europe, these really long spans. Uh, and then, you know, in other parts of the world, there's potentially a bit more of a safeguard just because of how these cables happen to have been laid. For example, in Asia, the cables kind of use Singapore as a hub. So there'll be a stretch of cable, but then it kind of stops in Singapore and restarts going in another direction. And since Singapore is at the equator, that gives those uh, cables potentially more protection is what the researchers were finding. Again, Likely the cable itself would be okay, but all this necessary equipment that's in these uh, set distance intervals along the cable, all of that would be fried and would need to be replaced. And so part of the concern the researchers are raising is that similar to what grid operators have done, perhaps either the U.S. or individual countries or the global community needs to have a plan and a playbook for how do we, in the most quick and efficient way possible, get out there with boats and actually replace, you know, these repeaters or, you know, the internal components uh, that could be disrupted by this. So a lot of variability since the storms, again, happen very, very, very infrequently. You know, it's just difficult to gather data and it's difficult to know whether we would face the true worst case scenario in any immediate future. But the thought is just if we don't have any plan at all, then what you're you know, saying would come to pass, which is that it's just incredibly time consuming to bring the cable back online. And in the meantime, there could be you know, all these sort of cascades and knock on effects and digital traffic jams in the rest of the global Internet as it kind of tries to compensate for whichever cables are down. Uh, I think it's timely that this report is coming out now because we're sort of due for another solar event. Um, the sun tends to operate in a cycle where it has a period of high activity on the surface of the sun and then a period of low activity. And we're ramping up towards another period of high activity. It's usually about every nine or 10 years uh, that we see high activity coming out of the sun. And I think the last time that we saw some was about six years ago, seven years ago. So um, we are approaching uh, possibly in the next couple of years, a large solar event that we're gonna have to be prepared for. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, th this definitely is not my area of expertise, but I believe there are sort of multiple cycles. So there's also more like a sort of like an 100 year storm type of concept. You know, there's sort of 10 or 13 year cycle. Then there's this kind of longer cycle. And we're basically hitting the end of a lot or, or the beginning, you might want to say, of a lot of these cycles. Yeah, as you're saying, and especially as we are confronting so many other types of natural disasters worldwide, it does seem like an important moment to consider this just as one of many things where it would be really productive and kind of behoove us as a global community to have an, a risk assessment and a plan for how to respond. All right. Uh, we're going to take another quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about the big one. Uh, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing but good news on this show. We're going to come back and we're going to pour a strong drink and, and give our recommendations. 
as our guest of honor, as our, our what is it, a soothsayer? Our doom seeker? Yeah, guest of doom. Cassandra. As our Cassandra on today's show, what is your recommendation? Uh, my recommendation is, I don't know if it's as the Cassandra or the, the resident Luddite or, you know, what we want to call it, but... My recommendation is that folks like me who are still using an iPhone 6S, that we get new phones. Oh, please. <laughs> because when <laughs> Apple releases iOS 15 very soon, uh, our phones are going to stop receiving security updates. And that is an unsafe position to be in. So... I'm actively scouting for my next phone that probably will not have a headphone jack, sadly, <laughs> uh, but will have up-to-date software. Planned obsolescence, I tell you. Lily, uh, we do know a few people here who could help you pick a phone. Do you think you're going to get an iPhone or an Android phone? I will probably get an iPhone uh, just for ease of transition. But yeah, I'm going to be reading a lot of Wired coverage and Wired recommendations. To So y you tell me. you Lauren, you tell me. I am pretty happy with my iPhone 11. Oh, Mike's holding up two fingers like, what, should it, the mini? Yeah. I don't know if Lily wants... Lily, do you, do you think you would like a small phone? A small phone. <laughs> so the mini is... The footprint is slightly smaller than the iPhone 6S, but the screen is larger Mm -hmm. So I definitely have thought about it because mm -hmm. it would sort of be like a real estate upgrade for me. Uh, I guess I'm the prime candidate for it, but I kind of feel like I may be ready to step into, you know, 2021 normal phone size and just kind of move forward. Uh, I don't know. What do you think? The battery life on the MIDI is not great either. And then again, we're not really going anywhere these days, <laughs> <laughs> but... Cannot emphasize enough how poor the battery life on the iPhone 6S is. The, I, yeah. This was a known issue at the time. Uh, even <laughs> I've replaced the battery, but it uh, really does not get better as the operating systems get more processor intensive. That's right. And the processors themselves have been upgraded quite a bit since the iPhone 6. Uh, the chemistry, of course, of lithium-ion batteries doesn't change much from generation to generation or at all, but the processors become more efficient and, and can utilize the power source better. So, um, yeah, we might have to bring you up to, like I said, I'm pretty happy with my iPhone 11, which at this point will be a couple years old, but um, some folks really like the iPhone 12. Uh, I'm sure we're going to see some upgrades with the iPhone 13. I tend to be of the, the thought that, like, you really don't need the Pro or the Max phones unless you are looking for the absolute top of the line camera. You care about things like, I don't know, having like LiDAR in your phone and like the new ones are rumored to have like one terabyte of storage, which will be, a, you know, available in the advanced models and like, or if you just like really want like a big fat phone. I don't think you, I don't think most people need that. So Lily, you might be good with like I don't know. We'll see what the iPhone 13 brings. Maybe the iPhone 12. Yeah, I'll be watching because on the flip side, when you keep phones as long as I do, I, I typically like to get the newest thing because most of the life of the phone, it'll be very old. <laughs> so if I if I start old, then I'm already behind uh, in the year, the phone's uh, long journey with me. So just trying to set everybody up for success here. Excellent point. 
I, I will say that I admire you for keeping your iPhone 6S for as long as you have, because I thoroughly believe that people should wear things out instead of breaking things in. So kudos to you for that. And when you get a new phone, uh, yes, not having a headphone jack sucks, but you're going to love the camera and you're going to love wireless charging. Well, if you have me back on the show sometime, I'll let you know how it's going. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Uh, I was like, Lily, are you free in early September for a review of the new iPhone? We might be tapping you for that. Mike, what's your recommendation this week? Um, I'm going to recommend an old television show. It's not that old. It started about 10 years ago. It's called Justified. Uh, It's six seasons long. It is a cops and robbers show uh, starring Timothy Oliphant and Walton Goggins. It takes place in Kentucky, in Harlan County, Kentucky. And uh, it's about a, a U.S. Marshal who is competing with various criminal operations. Most of them are involved with his childhood friend, uh, who is now his enemy. So it's like sort of this, you know, six season long face off between good and bad. And the lines get blurry, of course. And uh, the acting is fun and interesting. And uh, Lauren's giving me squinty eyes. But it is. It's like, you know, it's it's not one of those shows where like, they win a lot of awards because it's kind of cheesy, but it's good cheesy. And I'm recommending it for that reason in particular. It's not like a super heavy show. It's it's cops and robbers show. So there's like gun violence, but it's not like super intense. You know, it's not like uh, it's not like The Wire, The Sopranos or anything like that. It is as lighthearted as cops and robbers shows with gun violence get. Uh, and it is... Uh, breezy enough where you can just sort of binge it and you don't feel terrible after watching three episodes in a row the way that you would with with some you know television dramas uh anyway uh if you're looking for a new show which i'm sure at this point you know of not necessarily going out again yet you might be looking for uh i can recommend it if you've never seen it i had never seen it we watched it at my house you know, over the last six months or so, uh, you know, you can dip in and dip out. So I would I would recommend it for anybody who is a fan of, you know, good television that's not trying to be something more than just a TV show. Justified. And that's on Hulu. Yeah. So it was on FX. Uh, and I think if you have any of the services that have FX, you can also watch it. But it is you can watch every episode on Hulu if you have Hulu. And tell us what your Hulu password is. Uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) I thought I would just keep, you know, keep going with the line of questions there. It's password. But, but the O is a zero. Oh, Lily's impressed. Our cybersecurity reporter is impressed. Um, You know, the last time we were talking about streaming services and I half jokingly said on the show, just message me for my HBO Max password. I'll give it to anybody. I did get a message from a stranger. Uh, Did you give him your password? No. No. I was like, I'm sorry, I was being somewhat facetious. <laughs> somewhat. <laughs> um, well, gosh, I don't really have, a, I don't have a, an uplifting, light, or breezy recommendation. All right, well, I, hit us anyway. All right. Uh, some of you folks have heard of The Daily. Uh, pardon me, let me start that again. Some of you may have heard of The Daily. Hmm. Uh, it's a very popular podcast. Uh, put out daily by the New York Times with Michael 
or borrow. Uh, and uh, I listen to it fairly regularly. And this week on August 31st, The Daily did an episode on America's final hours in Afghanistan featuring New York Times senior writer Eric Schmitz. Uh, it's it's thorough. Um, it's thoughtful. It's honestly, it's not very uplifting. So I guess I am keeping with the theme of today's Gadget Lab episode. But I think it's a really important listen. Um, so if you are wondering about those final hours um, of America's presence in Afghanistan, where we've been for the past 20 years, um, have a listen. All right. Yeah, I'll have to listen to that. It's in my queue. I haven't I haven't pressed play yet. All right. Listen to it after Gadget Lab. All right. That's our show for this week. Thanks again, Lily, for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's always great to have you on. And we're going to bring you back sometime in the fall to talk about your fancy new iPhone. <laughs> and uh, thanks to all of you for listening. As always, if you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes. We'll include our handles there. And this show is produced by the excellent Boone Ashworth. Goodbye for now. We'll be back next week. Hi, everyone. Michael from Gadget Lab here. I want to tell you about our friends over at The Big Take Podcast from Bloomberg News. Each weekday, they bring you one important story from their global newsroom, like how AI will upend your life, or why China's targeting the US dollar, and maybe how Joe Biden plans to take on Donald Trump. Oh boy. Check out The Big Take, a daily podcast from Bloomberg, wherever you listen.